Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahal Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. And you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're very grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. We have a great show for you today. We're going to look at the interesting life of how Peter Brown, the second Marquess of Sligo. We're very pleased to be joined by Anne Chambers. Anne is the author of 10 biographies, including the best-selling Grace O'Malley, the biography of Ireland's Pirate Queen. Her books have been the subject of TV and radio documentaries for Discovery, The Learning Channel, Travel Channel, ABC Australia, BBC, BBC World Service, RTE, TG Carr and Lyric FM. Anne was shortlisted for the Irish Book Award in 1988 for Eleanor, Countess of Desmond, in 2014 for TK Whitaker, Portrait of a Patriot, and for the Hennessy Literary Award in 2014. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. And today, um, just me, John Dorney, Cahill's not with me today, um, but we're talking to a very interesting guest. We're talking to Anne Chambers, who's the author of the new book, The Great Leviathan, about Lord Sligo, who helped to end slavery in Jamaica, among other things. And Anne, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Now, Anne, I'm fascinated, first of all, to hear about the background of Lord Sligo and his family in the west of Ireland. Can you tell me about his family background? Well, uh, Paul Peter, Lord Sligo, the second Marquess of Sligo, has a very interesting background. He, for starters, he's that curious mix of the old Gaelic aristocracy and the incoming Elizabethan officialdom that came into Ireland during the 16th century. And among his famous antecedents, he has... On his paternal side, he has Grace O'Malley, the famous Irish pirate queen. He's her eighth great-grandson in descent. And on his maternal side, he is the grandson of the famous Admiral Howe, who saved England on the glorious 1st of June, 1794, from the French invasion. And he was the admiral uh, for England during the time of King George III. His mother was English. His father was of that Irish Gaelic uh, Elizabethan ancestry. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting mix. And indeed, in one of uh, the first chapter of my book, I really wanted to detail that because it does affect his life further on. So that is his background, really. And of course, the family owned the uh, Westport House estate in County Mayo. 
It's interesting, you know, we have a stereotype of the Anglo-Irish, the Protestant ascendancy, but, you know, in reality, some of them are from very mixed blood, as you say. Well, you see, this is our, our problem here in Ireland. And indeed, I wrote a book some years ago called uh, At Arm's Length, The History of the Irish Aristocracy and the Republic of Ireland and their relevance today. And indeed, I interviewed 14 of their descendants. And I think we here in Ireland have that problem with our former ascendancy, our, our aristocracy, both Gaelic you know, Elizabethan, Jacobean, uh, Cromwellian, we have put them all together into a little uh, sector and we've left them there and I think abandoned them. And, you know, I often think when there's a title in, in front of a historical figure, we tend to ignore it. And that makes me, I've written about Eleanor Countess of Desmond, another, another woman in the 16th century who was totally, and I think again, because of her title, she was totally abandoned by historians. So this is where biographers like me come in. We're a bit different to historians. We go for the life rather than the uh, events. And we see how historic events impact on individual lives. And, you know, where, where Lord Sligo is concerned, particularly now with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the things that's happening worldwide with racism, he was almost 250 years before his time in his relationship with slavery. You know, he again doesn't get that acknowledgement. If he didn't have a title, I think perhaps he would have. And can you tell me a little bit about the family's background as landowners, both in the West of Ireland and in the West Indies in the late 18th century? Yes, how came, they came about their, their estate in Mayo is very, very interesting. Colonel John Brown married Grace O'Malley's great-great-granddaughter. She was the daughter of the third Viscount Mayo, who had been shot, actually executed by the Cromwellians. And uh, John Brown himself was just an ordinary landowner, really, and he also was a lawyer, so it helped, I suppose. And he acquired a lot of his father-in-law's estate through his marriage with the daughter Maud Burke. Now, he got that, as I discovered from the old documents that were uh, retained in Westport House, in which I was given exclusive access, indeed, uh, many years ago for other books I wrote on the family. Uh, it was very amazing to see that, you know, we always associate great estates in Ireland with confiscation, but where the Westport House estate is concerned, that did not happen. It was through marriage and through payment and through buying, perhaps at a discounted rate, but that was how that huge estate was put together. Now, it started with Colonel John Brown's marriage, as I say, to the daughter of the uh, Viscount Mayo. But he, John Brown, was a signatory to the, um, after the Siege of Limerick capitulation that occurred there, he's one of the signatories. And when he came back to Mayo, he was, all his lands were taken from him. So he ended his life really in penury. But his son had to keep a low profile because he was a Catholic, they were a Catholic family. His grandson was the guy who started to put together the estate and the power of the Browns in Westport. And he firstly converted to the reformed religion as most landowners who hoped to hold on to what they had were required to do. And from there on, the power of the Browns began to emerge. But it was, that was the background to it. You know, it wasn't confiscation like we normally associate with great estates in Ireland. It was through marriage, through being in the right place, basically at the right time and adapting to the change political and religious circumstances. And how about in the West Indies? How did they come to be plantation owners in the West Indies? 
Very, very interesting. The Browns, again, through marriage. That estate, they owned two plantations at the time of the second Marcus of Sligo, two plantations, and they were inherited by him through his grandmother, Elizabeth Kelly. Now, the Kelly family, it, it wasn't a Brown estate at all. It came through the Kellys of Listoff County, Galway, a very unusual family. During the penal laws here, because of the contacts, but particularly between Galway and the West Indies, Galway, the great, great merchant port at the time, the merchant princes, the tribes of Galway, always did business with the West Indies, even when it was under Spanish control. And we must remember that Spain owned Jamaica long before the British got there. And they were established there and they were part and parcel of the plantation, the plantocracy out there, which included slavery. You know, Catholic people who are not allowed practice here or accumulate wealth, once they went to the, to the what was then the British West Indies, they were allowed to do what they liked. So the Kelly family were to the fore there. And how Peter, I'll call him how Peter now, Lord Sligo, his grandfather, Dennis Kelly, became Chief Justice of Jamaica. And he had one daughter, Elizabeth. And he decided to leave uh, Jamaica in about 1769 and come back to his estate in Galway, in Listoff County, Galway. And there Elizabeth met John Brown, Peter Brown, should I say, from Westport, a, a minor landlord in Ireland. And she obviously the fell in love. And um, it's very, very interesting that Dennis Kelly didn't think great about the marriage his daughter was making to such a degree he insisted that Peter Brown change his name to Brown Kelly or Kelly Brown before he allowed the marriage. So she brought the plantations into the Brown family and from then on they remained in the Brown family until financially they were really expired in the late 1800s. Now we're talking quite a lot about Peter's family background before we talk about himself but I think it's important to talk about you know where he came from and so on and another thing that strikes me from your book Anne is they were known as liberals in politics. Uh, what did that mean in the late 18th century? Yeah, well, don't forget, for an Elizabethan family, the Browns are very unusual. They were Catholics, and they married into the Gaelic aristocracy, as you know, the Brown, the Bur O'Malley's, and the Burks, particularly. And they changed their religion, like a lot of us, if you, you know, what would you have done under similar circumstances when they had to, when they're, you know, to hold on to your land, you, when the penal laws came in here, you had to adapt or die, basically. And they were the ones who adapted, but they always kept that... They were the buffer, they became the buffer between the, the Protestant government in Dublin and their Catholic landowners. A lot of their neighbours remained Catholic and they, the Browns became that buffer between both. And they took the Catholic emancipation very, very seriously and they were at the forefront always of trying to get the penal laws abolished and they never really instituted them or made use of them in any way for their own advancement. And indeed how Peter, when you, we come to talk about him and what he did, he was one of the major players for Catholic emancipation with Daniel O'Connell. He always felt that the British government dragged their heels on emancipation and made the people very bitter as a consequences. And he foretold 
the future that Ireland would leave uh, Britain and it would have all come from that with the famine, of course, coming after he died. So all of that was leading up. He was very far-seeing, but their position on Catholic emancipation is one of, you know, uh, very, very uh, pro-Catholic emancipation. Well, I note that Dennis, Peter's father, was also uh, the captain, I think, of the Yeomanry in the West of Ireland during the 1798 rebellion and had quite a harsh reputation as well. Well, you know, that was an extraordinary part of my research. I even grew up myself knowing I'm from the West of Ireland and I often heard of old Brown, you know, the uh, bear of the West and that he was terrible during the 1798 rebellion. Well, we have to think very carefully. You always, as a biographer, have to look on both sides of the coin. They had seen what was happening in France as the heads of the French aristocracy fell into the baskets under the guillotine. You know, a a French invasion of Ireland threatened all kinds of things to the ascendancy at the time. Dennis Brown was the only brother of how Peter's father, the first Marcus of Sligo, and he was also Sheriff of Mayo when the French arrived in Castlebar in 1798 and the famous races of Castlebar took place. Now, after the French were defeated in County Longford, the repercussions on the, not on the French, the French were allowed, as you know, leave with arms, uh, with their drums beating and allowed to leave Ireland. It was the Irish who took the full brunt of British reprisal for that rebellion. And things in Wexford happened, as you know, the pitch capping of people, the hanging of people, Hundreds and hundreds of the so-called rebels, Irish rebels, were meted out terrible, terrible treatment. Now, in Mayo, where Dennis Brown was a sheriff, there were three people hanged, and one of them happened to be a Catholic priest. And from that came out this awful uh, devil that was Dennis Brown. But as I found when I went through his papers, I found him absolutely, there was another side to Dennis Brown. That was all he allowed happen. He said, if we make an example of two or three people who took part, and after that, we forget about it. And that's really what did happen in in Mayo. But that idea that Dennis Brown hanged so many people, he didn't. There were three people hanged in County Mayo as a result of the 1798 rebellion, when there were hundreds, for example, down in Wexford and other places in the country. So we have to put it into perspective. Secondly, he was very much, as all his family were, against the awful situation of tithes, where the Catholic majority had to keep the Protestant churches with being taxed to keep the the Protestant churches, which belong to such a minority in comparison, to keep them going. And Dennis Brown was very much against that. He was also against the fact, indeed as his nephew was as well, that the Industrial Revolution had bypassed Ireland. Where in England, when the great estates shoved their tenants off the land when they went to pasture as distinct from, from horticulture after the Napoleonic Wars, The thousands of landless tenants were absorbed into the Industrial Revolution in the great industrial cities of Lancashire and the Midlands and London and Manchester and all of these places. Ireland had no outlet like that. And the Browns were very, very adamant all the time, including Dennis Brown, that Westport, their place in Westport should become an industrial hub because the land simply couldn't support the thousands of people, the 
You know yourself that the population in Ireland over 30 years almost doubled leading up to the famine. So the land couldn't, and particularly the poor land off the Westport estate, even though it was 200,000 acres, you know, that sounds, part of that was bog land, moorland, as it is indeed today, all that beautiful, beautiful scenic area, but very, very bad for production of food, where the population was almost doubling every 10, 10 years there. So you had all of that happening, and the Browns really wanted to try and did make Westport into a hub for alternative employment, particularly the linen industry. And then when that was undermined by the British export charges, they moved into things like corduroy and making other cotton material. Indeed, how Peter's own cotton book of samples is still in, on view in Westport House today. So they had this kind of visionary, uh, more so than most landlords in Ireland. And indeed, what Daniel O'Connell, I have to quote him because he, of course, wasn't a great lover of landlords. But I remember there's a, in the Hansard, he stood up in the, in the House of Parliament in England and said that if uh, the second Marcus of Sligo, if every landlord in Ireland was doing what he was doing in Westport, Ireland, he said, would not be the vast place it was. Now, he spoke about that just prior to Catholic emancipation. But the Browns had that kind of vision that the land itself couldn't support people, so we need a mini industrial revolution to do that here. And they complained and complained to the British government on umpteen occasions. You can see all their letters are there in the, in the records. And sadly, nothing was done, only what they decided to do at their own expense. So this was the background from whence Peter Howe Brown came. Can we talk now about Peter and his early life? Well, now he was an idolised son by his parents. And, you know, for somebody, he was an only child. And both mother, Admiral Howe's daughter, and his father absolutely idolised his son. Now, his father was an unusual man to the extent he was very interested in agriculture. And indeed, he was a member of the Royal Dublin Society in, in, uh, here in Dublin. And uh, many papers on development of things like the globe turnip. He was a great farmer. He wanted to try and invent new ways of even basic stuff like manuring his land. Now he was also the powerhouse. Everything went through the Marcus of Sligo. He also voted for the union uh, with Britain because he felt it was like, I suppose, us leaving the EU today. It was where would Ireland go with, if they didn't have the great British empire? So that was one of the reasons he did vote for that. How Peter himself was brought up as a rather spoiled uh, young uh, only son. He was firstly educated by tutors in Westport House and then because of his mother's status in England, and we have to, this impacts very much on the story. His grandmother and his aunt, uh, Admiral Howe's uh, wife and his daughter, were ladies-in-waiting to Queen Charlotte, who was uh, George III's uh, wife. So when how Peter, I call him how Peter, was sent to uh, Eton, he had access to Windsor Castle and to the royal family. And indeed, George IV stood godfather for his son. So from his mother's side, you have this very, very powerful connection with the royal uh, family in England. Whereas in Ireland, you have his father being the agriculturalist, the good farmer, kind of keeping his eye on everything that was happening in Mayo. You know, he selected who went for parliament, as it was the way at the time. All of that. 
So the mother tended to like to go to England. She was very proud of her father, Admiral Howe, and she insisted, I think, that Howe Peter be sent to Eton. From Eton, he went on to Cambridge. Very unusual, really, for the son of a Marquis because they looked on education as being unnecessary after a certain time. But his father insisted that he go and do a degree in Cambridge. And it is here the Regency Buck image emerges because the man he met in Cambridge as a student, I think Byron, your Lord Byron, epitomizes everything that is naughty and not too nice and debauched in Regency England. And he fell in with him and they became basically bosom buddies and got up to all kinds of scrapes. You know, they were into everything from gambling, racing, you know, the courtesans were very uh, easy at the time. Covent Garden was looked on as a great next uh, to a brothel, basically. Uh, it was referred to as the brothel. So they had that life of carefree youth. And because uh, they had money, I suppose that helped as well. The next stage in his life, he took over. His father died when he was just about 21 years of age. And the mother comes into her own uh, there and she decides to help him run this vast estate in Westport. And also, we forget Jamaica at the time because that was in the hands of uh, managers and estate owners over there. They had very, very little contact with the state, with their plantation, only to receive some sugar and some rum every year in Westport House that came from the money that was coming from it was very, very small. How Peter himself said he never made any money. £2,000 was as much that ever came. And there was, was a reason for that, which we can talk about later when we talk about um, the plantations in Jamaica. Himself and, and Byron, it was the time of the Elgin going off, finding the, the treasures in Greece. Now, people say it was terrible to go and raid uh, the old Greek artifacts. But you have to remember that Greece was under the control of the Turkish Empire at the time. And how Peter himself writes about seeing the Turkish army taking pot shots at the Acropolis. They had no concern about the great artifacts of the old Greek uh, empire. And in Cambridge, how Peter was tutored by a very famous Greek uh, archeologist who purported to say, can we save these Greek artifacts and bring them back and put them into museums? And he exhorted his students to do that. So you have people like Elgin going off and taking back what he found, and they are now on view. Perhaps they should be back in, in, in Greece, but they're on view at least in the British Museum. And how Peter followed. Now, Byron had already gone on another totally different from a, a sexual point of view. He was interested in Greece, not for any artifacts, but how Peter followed on. And he keeps a diary of, his, of how he got to uh, Greece. And when he went to Malta, which was then at the center point of the Britain, you know, it was the great place for all the ships for, for Britain who were at war at that time with Napoleon. And that was one of their headquarters, the island of Malta. And while he was there, he decided to hire his own ship because he wanted to go off to visit all the islands on the, off the Greek coast. And he also wanted to go treasure seeking in uh, Athens. So he bought a ship. And, you know, I often think maybe because of his grandfather, Admiral Howe, and because of his eighth great-grandmother, uh, previously Grace O'Malley, that he fancied himself as a mariner and took control of his ship. 
and became a kind of a pirate uh, working on the ship. But one thing he made a mistake, he sent his, his captain to go, he was short of three uh, mariners for his ship, and he sent them into Valletta. And, you know, press-ganging people was part and parcel of filling any ship, but unfortunately his captain press-ganged three men from a man of war of the British uh, warship. And he didn't discover that until the ship had set sail. A ship was sent after him to sea, and he hid the three seamen under his own, <laughs> under the boards of his own cabin, and set off. Now, Admiral Howe's grandson doing this was frowned on, let's say that. He starts off on his Greek adventure, and really, John, I could have written a book on that part of his life alone. It is absolutely fascinating what he found, where he went. He went to Albania, he went to Turkey, and he, he's... He has a great outlook, unlike Byron, who was always very self-conscious and was there for reasons, as I say, other than antiquities, how Peter viewed everything with a tourist eye. You know, he's amazed. He writes his amazement. He doesn't hold back. He's not that sophisticated that he's, he thinks that everything, you know, just should fall into his lap. He takes control of his ship. He was starved for a couple of days when they couldn't make land. He, he, he takes on the storms and everything else that in his way. And in a way, you're on a great adventure with him. You don't know, is he going to get there in the end or whatever he does? He's inter entertained by various Turkish despots. You know, he writes fantastic uh, uh, about that. And one of the despots was Veli Pasha, who uh, was in charge of the province of Morea. And he talks about, um, you know, how he was entertained by this dictator. But of course, there was a reason behind it. And uh, he wanted to try and get a cannon from how Peter's ship. So how Peter gives Veli Pasha the cannon. And in return, Veli Pasha gives him three columns. And how Peter doesn't think much of them. He just puts them into his ship to bring back to, with all his other stuff to Westport. But as it turned out that these three columns were very, very important from an architectural point of view, they were the a former entrance to the tomb of Agamemnon. And they are now, if anybody wishes to see them, in room 11 in the British Museum, where how Peter's own grandson found out what they really were, how Peter didn't know what they were. But his grandson in 1908 found out that they were belonging to this famous tomb and donated them to the British Museum. So that, when he eventually came back two years later after all his travels, he was held responsible for what he did on, the, on taking the three British seamen from Valletta. And at a sensational trial in the Old Bailey on the 2nd of December, 1812, the second Marcus of Sligo was put on trial and he was found guilty and he was imprisoned in Newgate prison for six months and fined the enormous sum of 5,000. And the trial judge said to him that neither rank nor wealth would stop the uh, workings of law. And he took it on the chin and he went in to Newgate Prison, which was one of the most infamous prisons in, in uh, London at the time, served his time, and his letters that are written from it, which I found in various archives, doesn't mention a thing about him being in prison. It's as if he's just having a little nap somewhere for, for the six months, and he's sending letters to Byron, planning their next voyage somewhere. He wanted to go, I think, to uh, Persia. 
And when he comes out from prison, you know, if I had been writing um, a novel about Lord Sligo, people would say, well, this novelist has gone over the top altogether. Because when he comes out of prison, he finds that his widowed mother has married his trial judge. Mm, I'll make a suspicious noise there, Anne. I mean, it seems extraordinary, you know, to our eyes, you know, the life of a young aristocrat at the time. He can go around the Mediterranean in his own ship, uh, kidnapping Royal Navy sailors visiting the Ottoman Empire. It seems, it's a life of extraordinary privilege in, in one way. But the other thing that strikes me, though, is he becomes, you know, a kind of very earnest campaigner for the abolition of slavery and so on. And it seems very at odds with his, his early life. But what's the transition? Well, the transition, after he comes out of prison, he's told to get lost, basically, until the scandal dies down. You know, Admiral Howe, as I said, is held as one as his, with Nelson, you know, held as an icon of, of uh, British seafaring and uh, empire and everything. So he did get lost and he followed, he became fascinated, like a lot of young men of his time, fascinated with Napoleon. And he goes and visits Napoleon in Elba. Napoleon at this stage has been banished to Elba. And how does he get to see Napoleon? Well, the Irish are everywhere. You know, Napoleon's faithful marshal was Marshal Bertrand. And who the heck was he married to? Only Fanny Dillon, whose parents or grandparents came from County Mayo. So he gets an, in, an interview with Napoleon and, and after that goes down and stays with Napoleon's sister, the Queen Caroline of uh, Naples and stays there for two years. By the time in 1820, Dennis Brown, who people give out about so much, was saying to his, settle down and get married. You have to come back and look after your estate here. He was looking after it in his absence. And he finds the love of his life. And it's an extraordinary transformation in this man. And he marries the Earl of Clanricard's daughter, who is 16 years of age, a wonderful, wonderful woman. And it's lovely to see what he says about her. You know, he says, he, he sees her riding in a carriage with her mother through the streets of Portumna. And he said the minute he saw her, he knew that this was the love of his life. And it's lovely to see the love letters between him um, telling his mother how much he loves this young girl. And they go on to have a remarkable life together. And if I tell you they had 14 children together, it's quite extraordinary for his status. You don't really associate huge families like that with the ascendancy. They went everywhere together. And even at the very end of his life, one of his sons wrote about the fantastic love affair that continued between the two of them until his death. And it was that marriage that kind of changed him totally. He becomes now what was never his happened to him as a youth, he becomes a very stern father and a very strict father, and he becomes a very much a family man. There's a lovely little letter from him saying, I'm sitting here in, in the front room in Westport House with little kitten beside me. And that was his first daughter. Uh, she's very quiet, but teething. So you have a father's luck here. You have this man now emerging from the wild recklessness of his Regency days into this very much family-centered man. And he's beginning to take on his responsibilities as a landowner in the West of Ireland. And they were very, very difficult uh, responsibilities indeed. How did his political views develop at the time, Anne? 
Well, his political views were really, he inherited from his father. He was very much pro-Catholic emancipation. He was very much pro-bringing industry to Westport. Indeed, he was responsible indeed for the establishment later on of the first bank there. He also found the legal system in Ireland, as he wrote in a letter, he said, it is a disgrace to my country. And he tried to bring in independent magistrates. All the magistrates at the time came from the landed ascendancy. And he wanted to bring in independent magistrates from outside to dispense the law because he felt that the ordinary people were not getting a fair crack of the whip when they were taken to court because their own landlord may very well be the sitting magistrate debating their case. He himself interfered in many cases there where he saw injustice. For example, there's one case in Newport where he saw a, a man who had taken turf from a pile of turf that the local uh, minister had said was for the poor. And yet when he took a pile of turf for his cabin to heat his cabin, that same minister said he was stealing the turf. And the man said, well, I am one of the poor as well. And in the end, the case came to court and he was fined the enormous sum of six shillings, which meant almost three months uh, income at the time for something like that. And how Peter came and recalled the case and turned the tables on the local landlord, just as an example of how flawed the law was in catering for the needs of the majority of people. Secondly, Catholic emancipation took an awful lot of, of his time. Wellington and himself never got on. I found so many letters between them. And Wellington was always dragging his heels, although he did turn out to be the prime minister who did bring Catholic emancipation in 1829 into law. But he did drag his heels on it. And how Peter and he never got on in relation to that. And uh, he, he linked up with Daniel O'Connell on that as well and um, was very, very forthcoming on it. And indeed what he said when, when um, you know, it's me just talking about it, but it's nice to hear what he said about it. When Catholic emancipation was actually got, how Peter wrote, much blood will I fear flow because we are rid of the bad consequences of the British government having long refused the Catholic question to the country and of their granting at last to intimidation what they refused by justice. You know, he was very critical of the British government in relation to that. There was another side of him as well was reform of the tithes. He got that from his uncle and from his father. They felt the inequity of the majority of Catholic people in the country having to pay for the upkeep of a minority Protestant church was disgrace. And he was one of the ones that was at the forefront to abolish tithes, which happened, of course, later on in the 1830s. The one thing he didn't want to do was, and he fell out with O'Connell over that, was repeal. He would not support repeal. He felt, like his father had, that Ireland needed Britain, the British Empire, to, to survive. And that was one thing he, he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't agree to. So he had that very liberal way of looking at things. He had thousands of tenants that were all subsistence. And he used to meet them. It was quite extraordinary, really. He told them all that any of them who had a, a complaint to come personally to him in Westport House. And he used to lay, lay aside Tuesday and Thursday at a certain time. 
And hundreds upon hundreds of people would come and he would sit down and talk to them and see what their complaints were rather than going through his agent. So he was a very, very personable person. He, the aristocracy at the time were all powerful. They never admitted to mistakes. And he is a big exception. You can see that in his letters, you know, that he admits when he makes mistakes. He looked back on his wasteful youth with great regret because, of course, it, he spent too much money. Because he had a large family, that certainly impacted on his later life. And it also impacted for a while on his estate. So he wanted to try and make up for lost ground as much as he could. Now, there was another point to him on a personal basis was he suffered very, very badly. So did his father from rheumatoid arthritis, which affected his father in a desperate way and also affected him and indeed brought his life to a very, very premature end. He died at 56 years of age. The West of Ireland wasn't very conducive to that. And he did tend to spend some more time than he wished in London, attending the Parliament, but also attending doctors. So you had that side of him. But any time he came back to Westports, the bonfires were lit and people rather liked him. He wanted to do the best, whether he always managed to do it well. You know, at times the, ins the, the problems he faced, particularly with the population rise, were really insurmountable. And um, he established a, a hospital in, uh, you know, in 1831, there was a huge famine. We, we always concentrate on naturally on the, on the Great Famine. But there was a major famine in the west of Ireland, which affected the West Coast and Connemara, particularly in 1831. And he worked tirelessly during that whole year to such a degree that the Connacht Telegraph, which is a local paper in nearby Castle Bar, who was, was very anti-landlord indeed during that time. And the article they wrote about him saying that without his money, that Westport and the surrounding people and the people in the surrounding area would simply have died. He did everything he could. He worked with the local parish priest who in indeed acknowledged that for 10 hours a day, trying to get food to the people during that terrible per period. He went to get all his fine friends in London, all the people that he managed to bring in in London uh, that he knew socially, he got them all to get money to fund it. He brought down the Viceroy, Lord Anglesey, to see for himself the condition of the people in the west coast of Ireland. Anglesey managed to get some funding from the government to help the people during that period of time. So that was a terrible time, 1831 into 1832 in the west coast. And he stood up to the plate and really did all he could during that time. Yeah, you know, the figure of the patrician liberal uh, landlord is probably unfamiliar with us today, <laughs> but I guess... This is the backbone of the Whig Party in Britain at the time. You know, it's 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 uh, the way that a certain section of the aristocracy saw themselves that they were reforming and that they were helping the poor and so on. But um, moving on, though, how was it that Peter Howe Brown became the governor of Jamaica in 1833? He was running into financial difficulties and like that, he applied basically for a job. And his health was very, very bad. Again, he was in and out between doctors. Now, he had around eight children at this stage. So in 1833, he was offered the position of Governor General of Jamaica and the Cayman Islands. Now, there had been few other Irish uh, nobles there. Uh, Lord Belmore from Fermanagh was there as uh, Governor General. 
The slavery system was still very, very much part and parcel of everyday life. And I think we have to talk about the slavery system and to know a little bit about it. The trafficking in slaves was abolished in 1807. So consequently, the missionaries, particularly the Baptist missionaries, and Jamaica was looked on as one of the worst, indeed, places for slavery in the West Indies. And the Baptist missionaries were bringing the knowledge of slavery to people in the West. People didn't know, didn't care. You know, everything about black at the time, from medicine to philosophers to everybody looked on black people as, as how Peter says himself, subhuman. That was the way it was looked on by everybody in the West. And you had people going out with that mentality to run plantations like how Peter's two plantations. He never went there. His father never went there. His grandfather never went there. Agents looked after their plantations. And when somebody from Westport, who also inherited, uh, somebody in the town had inherited a small plantation in Jamaica, and when they went out, how Peter asked them, to have a look at his two plantations and what the slaves were doing and how they were faring, because he was beginning to hear these comments coming from, particularly, as I say, Baptist missionaries back to England and to Ireland to say that things were absolutely terrible there. And this man came back and he told him that his slaves, we have to say, that's the way they were numbered, were in a terrible condition like all others that uh, they were being what was called double-jobbed. They would work on his plantations, but the agents would make them work on other plantations, that they had various diseases. And you can see the letters that are going out now from how Peter, when he learns about this. And firstly, some of them are quite innocent. You know, he says, how are my black workers clothed? And they were, he was told by this guy that they were clothed very, very badly. So he sent out loads of parcels of clothes to his slaves. And then he asked that letter boxes be placed around his plant, two plantations and that the slaves were to put in any letters and address them, he said to me, Lord Sligo, Westport, Ireland. Now, he never thought, of course, that these slaves could neither read nor write. There was an innocence there, but at the same time, you can see this humanity in this man that he wants to do something even from a distance. So in 1835, in December 1835, he was appointed Governor General of Jamaica, and he set out. Now, it's quite extraordinary how he goes there. Firstly, the environment of Jamaica was very, very bad for, for Western children. They died from various complications. It was very, very bad for women. How Peter's wife, Catherine, was expecting again. And yet he said the British government tell, told him to leave his family behind. And he said, no, he could not bear to be deprived of his family and, and his wife. And they had to come too. And there's a lovely um, correspondence between the captain of the ship, indeed, who happened to be a relation of Lord Byron. But uh, that's another story. Um, and uh, between the captain 
at how Peter and the captain says, well, I will give you my, my cabin. And how Peter says, no, you will put me anywhere you find, even, he said, on the deck, but just give the cabin to my wife and my children. So he's bringing seven children and he's bringing his pregnant wife all these thousands of miles across the sea from Portsmouth over to uh, Port Royal in, in Jamaica. And it's a momentous journey, as one could imagine, for little children on this sailing ship. When they hit the Bay of Biscay, they, of course, hit a storm, as one does usually in the Bay of Biscay. And they thought that Catherine was going into a premature uh, birth. And they made it over to Jamaica. And when he arrives in Jamaica, the planters presume that he's going to be on their side because he owns plantations there. But his first, his first speech was given to the black people. He asked that they, as many of them come to the steps of the King's House in Spanish Town in Jamaica. And he tells them that he is here to institute a system called apprenticeship. Now, the British government had decided that there was going to be full emancipation, but it wasn't going to be until six years down the line. Now, to offer people freedom, but it, it was going to be postponed for six years down the line is very, very difficult. So what they did was, and what how Peter's duty was, was to insert a new system in Jamaica and indeed the Cayman Islands called the apprenticeship system, where now the slaves, the former slaves, would be apprenticed to their masters. They will serve an apprenticeship before achieving eventual full emancipation. And during that time, strict regulations of payment for their work and specific number of hours to be worked per week instead of what happened before whenever it was at the master's wish. You, you worked or you were whipped. What Hal Peter found in Jamaica when he arrived shocked him. He found every black person, he said, were stripped of every right. They were numbered as beasts of burden by their owners. The women were sexually exploited and everybody there was denied access to education. He found, as he said, the planters exercised despotic control and absolute power over the lives of their black workers. He became emotionally involved in the struggle for this emancipation of the slaves by virtue of the fact that he was seeing it now at first hand. He took an instant dislike to the planter, the white planter society, to such a degree that he moved his wife and children up into an upland area away from Spanish town. The planters knew, in a way, he was a little, he could have been a bit more democratic in his way of, or should I say, maybe a bit more, you know, not to have been shown wear on his sleeve, on his, his heart on his sleeve, really, in, in reference to slavery. And I suppose that is one of the drawbacks of his governorship, that he became too much on the side of the slaves, indeed, to a degree, damaged the apprenticeship system in that respect because the planters saw that their new governor now was going to take the side of the slaves against them. And this continued. He was one of the first to employ black people in his administration. It had never happened before until he went there. Every legislation was there to try and relieve 
the attitude of the planters. He called the whole system that it was beyond human uh, capability to even understand how planters would use other human beings in such a way. Now, as I said, Jamaica was particularly uh, notorious in terms of uh, its treatment of black workers. And he found it absolutely, as he said, repugnant to humanity. You know, so many other people benefited from slavery that we forget about. We only ever think about the planters, but you have to think about the economics of slavery. The sugar and rum industry depended on slavery to make a profit. It was all about profit. And not only were the planters making some profit, the people who shipped the goods, the people who sold the goods, who people who manufactured things from sugar and from rum and molasses, all of these people benefited from slavery. And we forget that. We often just think of planters and slaves. But there was a whole industry depending on that. That was what made it very, very difficult to abolish and how Peter saw that while he was there and knew that he was up against not merely the planters in Jamaica, he was up against people in high politics in the United Kingdom who also owned plantations in the West Indies. He was up against the people who manufactured, he was up against shippers, he was up against agents, and he knew that. And a concentrated effort to remove him from office started almost six months after his arrival there. As he said himself, they set out to make, and I quote him, Jamaica too hot to hold me. And that's exactly what happened. First, it started by the Jamaican press, which was owned by the planters and the politicians there in the assembly. And they started to undermine his physical appearance. Now, he had grown very, very large at this stage. And they talked about Sligo larding the land as he walked along. They talked about his Irish accent. They made fun of the way he dressed in Connemara wraparounds. They made fun of every single thing. They brought up the time he was imprisoned. They brought up his time with Byron. They brought up the fact that he had a, a mistress when he was a young fellow as a Regency book. All of these things were brought up. It, uh, I found a, a book that his children had actually pasted in to a large ledger. All these things, mostly derogatory about their father. And he took it all on the chin and he went along, did his job, went to the Cayman Islands, released all the slaves there because the Cayman Islands, as they are today, were very, very different to the rest of the West Indies. Eventually, he, he collided on a legal point with the uh, Jamaican Assembly and he made one error on a legislation and that was what they needed. So then they got the British government and all the concentrated forces that were required to get him removed came into place. And he was removed basically from office after two years in 1836. Nobody else wanted to take his job. They couldn't get anybody. They asked him to stay on for an extra four months, which he did. So he didn't leave until September 1836. When he was leaving, the anti-slavery press took up and they said the sound of fiendish delight that will greet the removal of our most enlightened governor from Jamaica, newspaper report said, is sounded everywhere, but we know what he did. The slaves of Jamaica, and they didn't have much money, gathered together 
their hard-earned few bob and made him a presentation of the most wonderful candelabra with replicas in silver, in replicas of various views of the slavery system, with a beautiful inscription telling what, what uh, Sligo had done for the slaves in Jamaica. And that was in Westport House, uh, held in Westport House for many, many decades after his death. Um, he left Jamaica in September 1836. And with his wife and two children, the remainder of the children had to be sent home because of illness. And he went to America and stopped off first in New York and then on to Philadelphia, where he met with the movers and shakers in the anti-slavery um, movement there. And he stayed many weeks with them and they again wrote about him and he told them of his experiences there. I suppose people are more familiar with the end of American slavery uh, and not so familiar maybe with the end of slavery in the British Empire. And, you know, the brief that Peter Howe Brown had in Jamaica was to end slavery in a gradual way with compensation for slave owners. And I, what I'd like to tease out a little bit is what's the difference between Peter Howe Brown's vision of how this should go and the, the, slave, the other slave owners themselves, the plantation owners in Jamaica? Well, the, the plantation owners in Jamaica was all about really profit. You know, they had to have slavery in order to stay in business. And when slavery was eventually abolished in 1838, with his help in the, in the Houses of Parliament, um, when he stood up and he said he was re releasing all the apprentices, he never called them slaves, apprentices on his own properties on the 1st of August, 1838, at the, that left the British government who were um, drawing, uh, dragging their feet over the eventual Emancipation Act, that left them with no choice because you couldn't have uh, free slaves on two plantations in Jamaica and not have all the others free. That was the side of things he took. But it was all to do with profit because the moment slavery was abolished in Jamaica, you know, the bottom fell out of the sugar and rum market. You see, it never recovered. There are very, very few plantations, even today in Jamaica, as I found out, particularly of sugar. They've moved on to other things because people in Jamaica, even still today, associate the making of sugar with slavery. Of course they do, because the memories, it's, it's only a hundred and whatever years. But it was all to do with profit. You know, as most uh, things in history are, you'll always find there it's, it's really business at the bottom of it. It's economics at the bottom of it. And the same with slavery. So two things before we leave Jamaica. The first free slave village in the world is, was named in his honour. And I visited it in Sligo. And indeed, I talked to a lot of the people whose uh, ancestors were these free slaves. This was the first village that they could be themselves. They could be free. They could do what they wished. They didn't have to depend on plantations. They were all given about an acre of land to look after themselves, to grow whatever they wished. And that was named after North Sligo, Sligoville, still there today. And a medal that was, uh, was, um, was struck uh, in 1836, for people, uh, the, the great, uh, like Buxton and all the others who were, uh, his name is mentioned on that medal as well. And he himself divided his lands in Kelly's estate, the old Kelly estate, and he divided it up among the former slaves. And each one was given 
so many acres. Now, I visited Kelly's now, and it was lovely to talk to the present owner of part of it, Dr. Cedric Bent. You know, his family had been slaves on the plantation, and now he owned it. So it was a lovely connection with how Peter to be actually there in Kelly's estate, that how Peter had inherited from his grandmother, Elizabeth Kelly, and to see now that one, a descendant of what was a former slave, owned part of it now. So it was a lovely conclusion for me as his biographer to be able to see that, that his work had moved on uh, so much after, he, after his death. Make it changed him forever, you know. Of his life really was writing articles about his experience. I found many of them, many of them were given to the government and they did form the basis for the abolition of slavery on the 1st of August, 1838, which he was in the House of Lords and he made that famous statement uh, to ensure that it happened. And also the apprenticeship system that he was elected to put into effect he saw that, he said, I went there as a proponent of apprenticeship and I came away, he said, a determined abolitionist. He didn't, he said the apprenticeship system was useless. It shouldn't have been there. You want immediate emancipation. So I found that he was totally, even to the extent of taking his eye off the ball in the West of Ireland, in his West of Ireland state, I think for the rest of, the, of his life, it was Jamaica really was, became uh, really central to all his actions and all his work. That's very interesting. So when he saw slavery up close, you could say, he mm. came to the conclusion it was a moral evil that had to be abolished. It wasn't a question of entering it gradually. No, as he said himself, his heart tended always to overrule his head, but he said he couldn't. He just couldn't even think of slavery uh, any right. There was no justification for it. And it was Jamaica that changed him. As he admitted himself, he went there as an, uh, to promote apprenticeship and he came away a determined uh, abolitionist. And the rest of his life was towards helping that to get there because the last five years of his life, he was very, very, very ill. He lived basically in London, uh, came back a couple of times to Westport, but uh, was under doctor's orders all of the time and indeed faded away. And I found his, his, um, his will, you know, uh, his will, which uh, was written a few years before he died. I think the modesty of the man as well, given he, um, and very extraordinary, given his status and uh, his connections and everything. And if I may just read from it, and he said, I desire to be buried wherever I may die, and that my funeral may be conducted in the plainest manner and with, his, with as much privacy as possible. And uh, indeed it was, and I found a, a newspaper report, uh, one newspaper report on it, and it showed that there were six people at his grave, as he wished, and he's buried in Kensal Green uh, Cemetery in London, and his tomb is there for all to see. And uh, there was one little report about it, as he wished, six people attended his funeral, and that's the way he wanted it. And a remarkable man, a huge transformation from, as I said, a life of debauchery on one side and this great liberal, well-intentioned, made lots of mistakes like we all do, you know, but acknowledged them, which I found very, uh, very appealing. And finally, Anne, just to wrap up, um, what's his legacy for today? What he said here. You know, and I'll just read it for you because his words are better than mine. And he said, slavery has divided society into two classes, 
To the one it has given power, but to the other it has not extended protection. One of the classes is above public opinion and the other is below it. Neither are therefore under its influence. To think that that was written over 150 years ago, I think today is so relevant. And I think as people are being pulled from their plinths by the uh, proponents of anti-racism, I think Lord Sligo, for what he achieved against his own kind, against his own status, against his own financial outlook because his estates fell into ruin uh, after emancipation. I think he deserves to be honoured and certainly to be remembered. He wouldn't want anything himself, but I think as his biographer, I feel I have a certain responsibility to ensure that his story at least gets told and is relevant today, particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is worldwide now. Okay, Anne Chambers, thank you very much. You're welcome. So that was my co-host, John Dorney, talking to Anne Chambers. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. So until next time, on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.